Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. All right. Hey, can we also thank our band for leading us in worship? Uh, grateful for you guys. Um, hey, we've actually been in a sermon series in the book of 1 John, and uh, I know this is our first back Sunday back here in this space, but we've actually been going through uh, this letter that was written by someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus. And he's really writing to this new group of Christians, and he's writing to them about uh, what life with Jesus is like as apart from, uh, and juxtaposed next to what life without Jesus is like. And so he uses all sorts of themes when he talks about kind of what life with Jesus is like. And some of the metaphors that we've been exploring are the ones behind me, for instance. So metaphors of light versus darkness, how life with Jesus is a life with light versus a life without him, which is darkness, or openness versus hiding, that a relationship with Jesus allows us to be an open people who are willing to admit things and that sort of thing, as opposed to hiding and shame and cowering in, in such a manner, or abiding versus striving. We talked about the difference of being like a son or a daughter versus being an orphan, and, and this idea of abiding versus striving is also found in First John, or children versus orphans, which I just mentioned, love versus hate, which of course influenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and so many others who have been advocates of justice um, that really have come from the underpinnings of faith, as well as life versus death. So there's all these different things themes that John is bringing about, because he's this eyewitness, and he's basically um, encouraging the people of God to basically say, this is what life with Jesus is like, and this is what life without him is like. Now, we've come to the end of this letter that he was writing, and he ends in a very conspicuous way. So check out this line that he writes. Look at what he says. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Sincerely, John, all right? And it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, that's kind of an abrupt ending. Why in the world would you end that way? Why would you end with this word idols? Why would you talk about keeping oneself from idols? Now, for some of you, again, maybe you're not religious and maybe this is kind of someone dragged you to this church gathering today and you're wondering, what is this word idol all about? In fact, it sounds so religious jargony. I can't stand it. This does not relate to me. Well, for a moment, I'd love to tell you what this idea of idols is because idols, of course... Um, back in the ancient world, idols were actually things that people would worship. So for instance, they would erect temples or statues for the Greco-Roman gods and, and uh, the places where they would worship and esteem these gods and deities. Uh, in the same way, people who, who worshiped ancestors, there would be these figurines perhaps they would pray before. And perhaps many of us, when we think of this idea of idols, we think of something physical and tangible. But what if I told you that this word idols is basically anything that we give worth to, anything that we actually worship? And see what John is basically doing, because he's introduced this idea of worshiping or giving worth to, the old English for worship is giving worth to something. So if you give worth to something, what if John is basically saying you could either give worth to Jesus or you could give worth to anything else that is not Jesus, i.e. an idol? Now, here's what's so interesting about this idea of idols, though. What if I could tell you that idols is not only things that are material, like these figurines and statues and temples that existed in the ancient world, but what if these idols were also idols that we also inhabited in our own hearts, whether you're religious or you're not? Because again, the idea of idols is what are you and I giving worth to? What do we center our lives around? What do we give our attentions and affections to? David Foster Wallace, who's an American novelist, he was giving a speech, a graduation speech, and check out what he writes as someone who professes not to believe in God. Check out what he writes about this idea of worship and see how it ties, it ties into this idea of idols. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. 
Uh, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, he writes or says. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now look at how he analyzes what this idea of worshiping these intangible things can do. If you worship money and things like no New Yorker does, uh, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Ouch. Uh, On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over those to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they are default settings, they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now again, he's not speaking to a religious audience here, he's speaking to every human being who orients their lives around something, whether tangible or even intangible, And the question for you and for me, and the question in the title of this sermon is, where is your confidence? Or in other words, what is your idol? Or what are you giving worth to? Or what are you worshiping? Because the reality is, like David Foster Wallace says, and even when John ends his letter in this manner, what he's basically saying is, every single one of us as human beings, we are orienting our lives around something. We are giving worth to something, whether you're religious or you're not. And the question for you and for me is, what are you worshiping? And that's why he ends this way because he's given this case for this is this Jesus person and this is what it means to give worth to Jesus or you could give worth to something else i.e. an idol now two questions that I'd like to pose to you today one question if you're if you're kind of still not tracking with this idea of idols if you've ever said this to yourself maybe you've never said it aloud but maybe in your heart and in the quiet of wherever you are you've said something like this if I ever get this, I will be satisfied. Have you ever said that before? If the Knicks ever win a champion, I'm just kidding. Uh, Well, maybe some of you. Uh, If I ever get that career, if I ever get that relationship, if I can just get that amount of money in my bank account, or if my kids, at least my kids can get that amount of money in their bank account, if I can just get that, If you've ever said that, that might be a clue. Perhaps there's an idol lurking beneath. This idea that if you can ever get this, then you'll be satisfied. Or if I were to ask this question, not only what is it that if you got that, that you'd be satisfied, but what if I asked you this question? Um, The question being, if you ever lost whatever it might be, then you'd be absolutely debilitatingly devastated. Whether it's your looks, whether it's your youth, whether it's this career. See, these questions are diagnostic questions to get at. What are you giving worth to? 
What am I giving worth to? What are the things, what are the idols that perhaps are lurking beneath? You can see it, it, this has nothing to do with religion. This has everything to do with the human condition. This longing to find purpose in something, to find meaning in something or someone. Now, the usual culprits that people point to when it comes to the things that we elevate as being the most important are usually money, sex, and power, especially in this town. Money, sex, and power. These are the things. These are the things that tempt us for more of it. Or these are the things that tempt us. Like if we were to ever lose it, then we'd be absolutely devastated. Now, here's what I would like to posit to you today, though. When it comes to money, sex, and power, especially this thing, something like money. Money is something so tangible. We can, in fact, there's dollar bills that you can hold and you can, you can grasp onto those things. Now, is it the actual money that is an idol? Is it kind of like we, we take out all the cash that we have? I know we don't have these, but maybe you open up your bank account online and you start bowing to this thing. Is that what we do? Is that what idol worship looks like? Well, no. Because again, it goes beyond things that are tangible. See, worshiping an idol, it's usually the feelings that go beyond these things. Tim Keller and uh, Dick Lucas, they actually write about some idols of the heart that go beyond simply the, the tangible things that we can often give ourselves to as saying like, oh, these are the things that we worship. So for instance, he, he, they talk about power. How oftentimes, maybe, let's, let's use the example of money. It's not necessarily money that we worship or bank accounts that we bow down to, but instead it's the feeling of power that this money gives to us. The feelings of a longing for influence or recognition. And so power in some ways can be an idol of the heart. Or maybe it's not power for you, maybe it's control. A longing to have everything go according to my plan. I know that this one is a big one for me. I, I know that the things that I want and the ways that I've, and of course this pandemic has shown us, if anything, that all of us have lost control, that we don't have control over anything, or we have control over some things, thank God. But, but ultimately, we don't have control. But some of us, that's what we worship. That's what we assign ultimate worth to. That becomes an idol of the heart, is this idea of control, of planning, of being able to know what's next. Or maybe it's comfort and a longing for pleasure. What actually drives us, what drives our bank accounts, what drives the way we spend our money and our time and energy is basically comfort and pleasure or security. Or maybe it's approval, the approval of others, a longing to be accepted or desired. And so we really, you know, money, what money gives to us is not necessarily the tangible thing of money, but it's also the idea that people like us as a result of it. Because what we want most, more than anything else, is for people to like us. You see, these idols begin to percolate all over our hearts. They're idols, and these are the things that drive us, even today in this city. There are these hidden motives, these hidden idols. Maybe it is your career and what your career will give you in the realm of power or control or security or approval. Maybe it's that relationship. Because so, if you're in that relationship, then you'll have the comfort that you've always longed for. What is the idol of your heart? What is the idol of my heart? You see, the way that John is writing, and the reason why he ends with this is because he's given this case, he's juxtaposed it. He's basically said, there's Jesus, and then there's everything else. And the question for you and for me, what are the idols? Does it have to do with our children? Does it have to do with their well-being? Does it have to do with how people perceive you or think about you? Does it have to do with your LinkedIn profile and what you can show all those people who thought you were a loser in high school, and you can show them, look at my LinkedIn profile. Sorry, speaking from some personal experience there. 
What is it for you that your idols that crop up in your own heart and mind. And again, this has nothing to do with religion or your, you know, whether you're someone of faith or you're someone who's not. But you know what's so insidious about this idea of idols? Because perhaps even you're a Christian here today and you're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and of course, like, I'm free of these idols. Well, again, John is writing to a group of Christians. He's saying, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because even people of faith can so so easily be wrapped up in idol worship. You know, in fact, I'd like to give this example from my own life and journey. Uh, I'd like to show a picture to you, and it's a picture of uh, me growing up. Uh, This is actually a picture of, I have three brothers, and so my oldest brother on the right, his name is Stefan, and uh, in three and a half years, my mom had four boys, and the reason why is because I have a twin brother. So my second brother, Philip, who uh, is Superman in the picture, he's actually a year older than us, and, and then my, my twin brother is my brother Peter. You could see him smiling, and he's got his thumb up like this. I know some of you thought that was me, but it's my twin brother. And then there's me off to the side, and you can see I'm kind of looking at my brothers, and I'm kind of laughing. You know, what's interesting is that uh, in a lot of pictures of us growing up, uh, the four of us, uh, it's usually very, very similar kind of, well, I perhaps, I should say, I have a very similar pose in each picture. I'm usually off to the side, and I'm usually looking at my brothers, and I'm kind of laughing, and, and I'm smiling. And I think in many ways, it's kind of a symbol of like the background that I grew up in with these three brothers. And uh, it's because each of these three brothers all had something unique and special about them. So for instance, my oldest brother, Stefan, he was the oldest, the trailblazer, someone who, and always towered over us, and of course would beat us up and pick on us. But of course, that was my brother, the oldest, you know, and my brother, Philip, Superman in the picture, he was someone who was really good at, at, uh, he was really smart and had incredible business acumen. I know that's weird to say as a kid, but like one day we found out when he was like in third grade or something that he had started like this tutoring business. Like someone would give him a tutor, uh, like a quarter and he would actually help them with their homework and stuff like that. And so my mom was so shocked, like, what are you doing? Like, how did you, you know? And, uh, but that's kind of like my brother there. And uh, some of you are like, is that legal? I don't know, okay? I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you what my brother did, okay? And so that's my brother, Philip. Now my brother, Peter, you can see him again with the thumbs up. My brother, Peter, Peter, first, he's extraordinarily good looking. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, see what I did there? See what I did? Okay. Um, anyhow, my, my brother Peter, he's like, um, he's this really well rounded, funny, gregarious person. In fact, uh, growing up, we all thought that he would become a stand up comedian. He was just so funny. And uh, so he'd always be making these funny poses and stuff. And uh, this is one of them. This was like his go to. He would do the, the big smile and the thumbs up. And that was my twin brother, Peter, and he was my older twin brother. And then there was me. And to tell you the truth, for most of my young childhood years, the reason why I'm looking at them and laughing is because I adored my brothers. And to tell you the truth, there was nothing about me that kind of stood out in my family. And so in a lot of the pictures, here I am, I'm just kind of watching and I'm kind of like basking in the glow of my brothers. 
Now, here's what happened, and I've, I've told some of you my own background of faith. I grew up in a very kind of contentious, political, kind of church, immigrant church experience where it had several different splits and cops were involved and all this crazy stuff. And then my father, he also became a vocational minister, but he was very violent in the home. Now, I know some people are like, oh, you're just a Christian because you grew up that way. And I'm like, no, you don't understand the kind of Christian, organi- the toxic Christian organization that I grew up in. Um, but nonetheless, I remember Um, still being part of like these different kids experiences and at churches and things like that. And a lot of different youth leaders actually kind of started to invest in me and took a liking to me. And because I was someone who, again, I was always kind of off to the side, but I did the right thing. I realized that by doing the right thing and by doing, being a good Christian boy, um, people really commended me. And I loved it. I loved it. It was the one thing that, that people would constantly say, Drew is so, like, pious. They wouldn't say that word, but here I am as, like, this fifth grader, sixth grader, like, this pious young boy. And so I remember kind of going to this one retreat, and uh, I was at this one retreat, and I'm like, and someone actually said to me, you know what you, you'd be really good at? You'd be a really good pastor. Almost like, really? I, Okay. So I went, I went home, and I remember telling my parents and my brothers, I'm going to be a pastor one day. And then uh, my brothers were like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? But soon, what became the designation for me? It was basically, Drew's going to be a pastor. Drew, the pastor boy, you know? And so as a result, my, my teenage years, and then even into college, I became known as the person who's going to be a pastor. So now, all of a sudden, I'm in college, I'm starting to wrestle with faith, whether I believe this or not, take religious studies classes, took a class on the Bible as literature. I come out thinking, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm confirmed in thinking that I definitely want to be a pastor one day. Or I'm sorry, that I am a Christian and I really want to follow him. Then I moved to New York in 2001 and all sorts of crazy stuff is happening. Uh, 9-11 happens. Uh, there are deaths in our personal family and all, like, all sorts of doubts are starting to creep in. And one of the things that I start to wrestle with as well is my own sense of identity. And as I was wrestling with my own faith again post-college, here are the things that I realized. I realized, wow. And I would would review, actually, I started meeting with a counselor, and I'd be going over kind of memories and images of my childhood. And one of the things that I realized was like, I, the reason why I wanted to be a pastor wasn't necessarily because I liked being a pastor. It was because it gave me this sense of importance and identity. And I realized that for me, for most of my life, especially in relation to my brothers, I wanted so desperately to have something that I could hang my hat on. And for me, it was being a pastor. And... I'll never forget that journey that I went through of just unpacking for my own self and my own sense of what matters to me. Just how ultimately it wasn't necessarily Jesus that I wanted. It was basically what Jesus gave to me, which was this identity as a pastor of being someone who's got it together And it's taken me years to extricate for myself all of these ways in which I realize that it's not necessarily Jesus that I assign worth to, but instead it can be what Jesus gives me. And isn't that insidious how even religion can do that? 
Even faith and vocation can do that. It can become an idol because of what it gives to me. You know, even in this recent season, as I wrestle with my own sense of being a pastor, you know, there's this sense in which this being our first Sunday back, like there's, uh, as I talk to different pastor friends, there's this creeping of like competitiveness, this creeping of like, how am I doing as a pastor? How am I measuring up? You know, are, are the people in our congregation, are they vibing with what we're doing? There's all sorts of intermixed with this weird kind of ambition and self-worth and how do people, what do people think about me and what do they feel about me? And here's what I'm realizing, even for me, and this is where it's so insidious and this is why John's exhortation is so powerful. He's basically saying, beware of idols because guess what? Even religious people or maybe especially religious people under the guise of following Jesus, we can actually be just as trapped in my own idol of approval in my own idol of what Jesus might give me rather than Jesus himself. That's what makes this so extraordinary how John ends. Check this out, 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now look at what he says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I mean, isn't this beautiful? He uses this word confidence because he's saying, like, don't you see this whole thing, this whole letter that I'm writing to you? What it's, what it's always been about, it's about inviting you to a relationship with the living God, a living God that you can have confidence that before him, like a son or a daughter of a good father, you can have this otherworldly confidence. A confidence that doesn't come from self-actualization, a confidence that doesn't come from what other people think of you, a confidence that isn't derived from how much is in your bank account, a confidence that doesn't come from what your boss thinks of you or what your parents think of you or what those people that thought you were a loser in high school think of you, but you can have this confidence, this deep-seated confidence in a God who wants to relate to you you know, um, I was officiating this wedding one time in uh, Houston, Texas, and I was actually, it was actually a cousin of Tina, and uh, Tina's cousin had actually asked David, our son, our oldest son, to, he was nine years old, to actually, um, to be one of the, uh, he was three at the time, and what do you call those boys? Ring bearers, yes, ring bearers. <laughs> oh yeah, I, sh I should have prepared more about this. I should have prepared this, uh, this illustration a little better. But um, so there was this moment in the, in the wedding where, and I thought I'd show this picture. It's a little justified, a little funny, but there was this moment, he was three years old and I'm officiating this wedding, right? And this is before everyone comes down, but all the guests have been seated. And I'm just standing there up front because I'm alone, I'm the officiant and, I, and everything, everyone's waiting. And David, he peeks out the door and you see his cousins are behind him because they were also ring bearers. He peeks out the door, he opens the door and he starts running down the aisle. And he comes down and he comes and he jumps into my arms. And everyone's just kind of laughing and snickering about it. You know, and I was, I was like so mortified. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. My, the last thing I ever want to do is take attention away from anything. And this is actually the first time I'm talking about this publicly. But like, and I, I doubt, by the way, the couple even remembers this. But he ran to me, he, he jumped into my arms and he hugged me. And there was just this moment where I was like, okay, David, uh, hey, 
go to Gara Amma. <laughs> you know, and I'm just trying to figure out where my wife Tita is. And so he runs off to wherever he was running to. You know, and as, as I was thinking about this illustration of the confidence to come with whatever we ask for, here, here's my son, David, who's just got this bold audacity. Like, doesn't need to ask permission. He just sees his dad. And he's going to open up that door and run down that aisle that's reserved for the bride. And... Uh, and, and, you know, that's the kind of relationship that God invites us to with him. It's kind of confidence God invites us to with him. You know, the past few weeks, we've been ending with this passage. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And look at what it says. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's this invitation that Jesus is giving to the church. He's basically, he's knocking at the door. He just wants, he wants to have a relationship. He wants to be that person who satisfies every longing of your heart. Every thirst for power, for approval, for security, for comfort. He wants to be the one, and he's knocking at the door, and he's saying, if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you. You know, in the last few weeks, I've also been showing this image from William Hunt, a British painter in the 1850s. It's a, it's a picture called Christ, the light of the world. And the light of the world, you can't see it so clearly because of the lighting, but uh, on the door, there's no handle on the outside of this painting. And what it's supposed to depict is this idea that Jesus is just knocking. The door handle is on the inside. The question for you and for me is, will you, will you open the door? Will you exchange your idols for the one who's just knocking at the door, vying for your worship. The one who actually would actually give his life and die on a cross and resurrect from the grave to give his life to demonstrate to you how much you're worth and inviting you into a relationship with the one who says that he will be your security, he will be your comfort. He will be the one that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil, for he is with you. He is the one that in those moments of the hills and the valleys, he is there. The one who has been worthy all along. The question for you and for me is, will you open the door?